If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Amos chapter 3. As we continue our studies in the book of Amos this morning. Amos chapter 3. Amos writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressions in her midst. But they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. These who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, An enemy, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you, and your citadels will be looted. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, For on that day I will punish Israel's transgressions. I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off, and they will fall to the ground. I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. Now, as we consider this chapter in the book of Amos this morning, we'll consider it under two main headings. First, Judgment begins with the household of God. And second, make an appointment with God. Judgment begins with the household of God. Second, make an appointment with God. And so first of all, judgment begins with the household of God. The nation of Israel seemed to have fallen into a trap here in the days of Amos, and we see it again in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ, thinking that their privileged position as the chosen people of God made them immune to the judgment of God, meant that they could sin with impunity. And so if you just think about our Lord Jesus interacting, or excuse me, John the Baptist interacting with the Jews of his day, he says to them, do not suppose uh, that because you're the sons of of Abraham that that you're going to be all right. He said God himself is able to, to raise up sons of Abraham out of these stones. In other words, you you don't get a pass just because you're the physical descendants of Abraham. And the Lord says to the people 
here in the Old Testament, here in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. The people of Israel were the people whom the Lord had chosen. He had redeemed their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. The Lord goes so far as to call them the only people that he had chosen out of all the families of the earth. But far from granting them immunity, the Lord gives their election as a nation as the reason for their punishment. So externally, these were the people of God. They had the, the ancestry, they had the lineage. The Lord had committed unto them His word, had commanded them to worship Him and Him alone and to walk with Him according to His word. But they didn't do it. They did not obey, therefore they would be judged. And now beginning in verse 3 in the text, we see this string of rhetorical questions that all point to the judgment which has been announced and was coming. Verse 3, do two walk together unless they have made an appointment? The implied answer is no. Two do not walk together unless they have an agreement, unless they have agreed to walk together. And in order for the people to walk with God, they have to be in agreement with God. And not agreeing with God, they don't walk with God, and God does not walk with them. Amos goes on to ask, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? And again, the answer is no. The lion's roaring signifies something. The young lion growls when he has captured some food. Verse 5, a bird does not fall into a trap on the ground where there is no bait, nor does the trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing. In other words, the trap springs closed when something has triggered the trap to make it spring closed. Verse 6, if a trumpet is blown in the city, the people will indeed tremble. This is in reference to a watchman sounding an alarm with a trumpet, giving warning of an approaching enemy. When you hear the trumpet, this is their equivalent to an air raid siren. If the trumpet was blown, indeed the people would tremble. And then in the second half of verse 6, Amos starts to bring together the point of these rhetorical questions that he's been asking. And so he asks, if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? And of course the answer is yes. It's not that God approves of sin or of evil, but he's certainly sovereign over everything that occurs in the world. And that means that if calamity occurs in a city, it is the Lord's doing in the sense that the Lord is the one who has ordained that calamity to come. And then in verse 7 comes not a question but a statement. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. I don't think we should construe this statement in such a way as to think that he means that the Lord absolutely reveals every single one of his providential actions beforehand to the prophets. The Lord has certainly not done that. But if we think historically, we can think and certainly understand that the Lord did reveal his major works in salvation history to his prophets prior to the occurrence of those events. He revealed the flood to Noah. He revealed to Abraham the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that he would make him the father of a great nation, and that that nation would be enslaved in a foreign land for 400 years before they returned to the promised land. He revealed to Samuel his choice of David to be king. He revealed to Nathan that David's throne would be established forever. He revealed to Ahijah the Shilonite early in 1 Kings that he would tear away the kingdom from Solomon and give ten tribes to Jeroboam. He revealed through the various Old Testament prophets that he would judge both Israel and Judah and that there would be a restoration. 
Specifically, he revealed to Jeremiah that the captivity in Babylon would last for 70 years. And he revealed through the different prophets the coming of Christ into the world. Through Daniel, he revealed that there would be four major world kingdoms between the time of the Babylonian kingdom and the time of the coming of Christ, the inauguration of the kingdom of God in this world. And through Christ, who is the prophet like Moses, who was to come into the world, through Christ, the people heard of the destruction that was coming on Jerusalem and did come upon Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And through Christ and the prophetic word of his apostles, Paul and John, we learn of the return of Christ at the end of the age, of the man of lawlessness who will precede the return of Christ and deceive many, and we learn of the final judgment. Indeed, certainly the Lord has revealed to his prophets the major events in salvation history. And here specifically, the Lord has revealed to one of his prophets, namely Amos, what he was about to do in regard to the northern kingdom of Israel. See verse 8. A lion has roared who will not fear. The Lord has spoken who can but prophesy. The Lord had spoken. He was about to judge. The Lord himself was the lion who was roaring. He was the lion who had found his prey and had let out a roar signifying that judgment was coming. And indeed, this is how the book of Amos opened back in chapter 1, verse 2. He said, The Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice, and the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. The Lord is this roaring lion who had come, had found his prey, and the judgment was about to fall. And we see some elements of that judgment that was coming there in verses 9 through 15. In verse 9, the the prophet hypothetically summons pagan nations, Philistines from Ashdod and the Egyptians, to witness the the tumults and the oppression that were taking place in Samaria. And this should have been quite a rhetorical rebuke to the Israelites. This would be the rough equivalent of summoning Muslims and Hindus to come and witness the sins of an apostate church. Though that apostate church might name the name of Christ, they deny him practically by their unbelief and their godly actions. And that was what was going on here. The Lord was, figuratively speaking, willing to summon these unbelieving nations to witness the wickedness of his chosen people who might, at least at times, profess his name, but yet practically denied him by their unbelief and ungodliness. And this is quite a rebuke to the nation of Israel. The problem, as indicated in verse 10, is that they did not know how to do what was right. At least, practically speaking, they didn't act like they knew how to do what was right because they were always doing what was wrong. In accordance with their greed for money and wealth, they were, they were hoarding. But what was it that they were hoarding? According to the text, the end of verse 10, those who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. They stored it up. They had plenty to spare, plenty to go around. It was so plentiful in their hearts and in their conducts that they could just pull some out of that storehouse and use it whenever they wanted to. This was their wickedness and hence the judgment that would come upon them from this enemy who surrounded their lands as indicated in verse 11. And verse 12 then gives an indication of how severe that punishment would be. What was left of Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel, would be comparable to what was left of a sheep after a lion had devoured it. Shepherd might be able to pull out a leg or two or maybe a piece of an ear. The Old Testament law in Exodus 22:13 required that if someone was keeping an animal for someone else, 
and that animal was all torn to pieces, then the one who was keeping that animal had to bring the evidence that it was torn to pieces so that no restitution would be made. In other words, the shepherd wouldn't be held responsible to make amends for sheep that was devoured by a lion. If he could show, hey, I didn't just steal this and send it back to Uncle Joe's farm. This lion was actually devoured and eaten. If he could bring the evidence, then no restitution would be required. So you can imagine a shepherd who found himself in that position wanting to make absolutely sure that he was able to to get some pieces of what was left of that sheep after the lion had killed it and eaten it. And so it would be with the nation of Israel. Only the pieces left over from what had already been destroyed would be recovered. And that's the way it would be here in Samaria when God's judgment came upon them. There might be a little bit left over, the corner of a bed or the cover of a couch, as you see there at the end of verse 12, but there wouldn't be much. As indicated in verse uh, 14, their religious security would be demolished. The illicit altars at which they worshipped in Bethel would be destroyed. The, the horns of the altar, those, those corners of the altar to which the, the sacrifice would be tied down, those would be cut off. The false worship would afford them no refuge from the judgment of God which was coming upon them. And nor would their wealth, as we see in verse 15. Again, this was a prosperous time for Israel. As we, we gather from Verse 15, it appears that some people could afford more than one residence, a summer house, a winter house. Some had great houses or houses of ivory. But in the judgment that was coming, those would be destroyed. The lion had roared. The Lord had announced by the mouth of his prophet that his judgment was coming. True, it was coming upon other nations, as we saw at the beginning of the book of Amos. But it was coming in a particular way upon the nation of Israel. Because, in the words of verse 2... Israel alone had been chosen by the Lord from all families of the earth. Therefore, they would be punished for all their iniquities. And there is a lesson for us here. And we find that lesson expressed in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter so we learned that an external connection to the people of God is a wonderful thing. It exposes us to the word of God, to the preaching of the gospel by which God saves sinners, but our exposure to the gospel actually guarantees us nothing. It's possible to sit under the preaching of the gospel and be none the better for it. It's possible to make a public profession of Christ, to be baptized, to be received into church membership, to be in church regularly, to partake of the Lord's Supper, and yet be self-deceived and hypocritical and as of yet still a stranger to the saving grace of God. It's possible for someone to have much exposure to the light, but still inwardly, perhaps even secretly, to prefer the ways of darkness. For such a one, it has been truly said by one writer, the nearer God places anyone to his own light, the more malignant is his choice of darkness. It's a great blessing to be placed near to the light of God. But if you're in such a place, your choice of wickedness is all the more wicked. And thus it is that Christ spoke as we read together from John 15. I am the vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Again, he says in John 15, 6, if anyone 
does not abide in me, he is thrown into the fire as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. And speaking of this way, Christ speaks of those who may outwardly profess him and may appear from an earthly point of view to be in Christ. But they're actually not in Christ. They don't know him savingly. And he compares them to branches that do not bear fruit. How is it that they do not bear fruit? It's because they do not abide in Christ. How is it that they do not abide in Christ? It's because they've never truly been united to him. And so John says in 1 John that they went out from us because they were not truly of us. Some people might be externally close to Christ or might appear to be externally close to Christ and might appear to have life but not yet truly be united to Christ. We can imagine that a branch might be very close to a vine and might even appear to be united to that vine, but yet not really be a part of it. And even so, someone might be born to Christian parents, might have a long history of involvement in the church, perhaps participation in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and yet still be an unfruitful branch, a branch that does not abide in Christ because it has never been truly and savingly united to Christ, even if it might appear externally to be united to Christ. And such a branch brings judgment on itself. It was much the same with Israel in the Old Testament. In an external sense, they were the people of God. They were his chosen people. But as we're reminded by Paul, Romans 9, 6-8, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. And those who were not truly Israel, true believers, were judged. And it is still true today. Not all who are in the church are necessarily of the church. Not all who are in the external, visible church are in the invisible church, which is the true church of Christ, consisting of all of those who have been redeemed by him, all who have truly come to him in faith and repentance. Not all who name the name of Christ are actually in Christ. And this behooves us then in the words of 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Understanding here from Amos 3 that an external connection to God or an external connection to the people of God does not save us means that we ought to be looking to ourselves to see where our security is. Is our security in Christ? Is your security in Christ? Because you've recognized your sin that separates you from God and you've recognized that apart from a Savior you're on your way to hell and you've recognized that Jesus is the only possible Savior and the only possible way to God because he himself is the Son of God who became man and was crucified for us and rose again. Is this your security? Are you, is your security in Christ because you've recognized all of those things being true and have fled to Christ, trusting in him alone to save you from your sins Trusting and entrusting him to save you from your sins, you've also repented of those sins and turned away from him. This is the way to examine ourselves, to ask ourselves what it is on which we are relying. As this chapter makes abundantly clear, false refuges are going to be torn down. False religions get us nowhere. The altars of Bethel will be punished. The horns of those altars will be cut down. 
Also verse 15, worldly securities, the earthly things with which you might seek to shield yourself, with which you may deceive yourself by telling yourself that you can ride out the storms of life. Those worldly securities will also be torn down and destroyed. The winter house, the summer house, the house of ivory, the great house, all of that will be of no avail when the judgment of God comes. Christ himself must be our refuge because no other refuge will stand in the day of judgment. We must come to him in true faith and in true repentance from our sins. Another part of self-examination means looking for, for fruit in our lives. Those who are unfruitful show that they're not connected truly to the vine. Jesus prunes those who do bear fruit so that they may be even more fruitful. And that teaches us that just because we're not as fruitful as we would want to be doesn't mean that we should judge ourselves as being unfruitful at all. There are various, various degrees of bearing fruit. Some produce a little, some produce a lot. We want to all produce a lot, or at least we should, but sometimes we only produce a little. And even when there is a little fruit, we should give great praise and thanks to God that our Lord Jesus Christ does not break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax, but rather he takes those that are fruitful and he prunes them so that they would be even more fruitful. But, nevertheless, uh, we find that those who bear no fruit are cut off and are burned. And so, what kind of fruit should we be looking for? Well, we should be looking for the kinds of fruit described in the book of 1 John. 1 John is, is full of things for which we can, can look and see what is written there in the Word and look and seek to apply it to our lives. So, 1 John 3, 9, for instance, No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. This is to say, a believer doesn't commit sin as a habit. Does not commit sin without remorse, does not commit sin without pangs of conscience, and does not commit sins without repentance. If you look into your life and you find yourself running headlong into practices which the word of God condemns as sinful, and you feel no pangs of conscience, you have no desire to stop, no desire to repent, Please take that as a big warning sign. You're on dangerous ground. All uh, the, the word here in 1 John 3 says that no one who is born of God practices sin. All believers sin, but all true believers repent. All true believers repent. The, first John, uh, the flip side of 1 John 3, 9 is 1 John 2, 29. Everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Those who are born of God practice righteousness. We're not only reckoned righteous in our justification when we're saved, but we are made practically holy by the working of the Holy Spirit within us. Everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And so we find, similarly, 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And one particular manifestation of this will be found in our love for others. This is keeping his commandment, to love one another. 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. If we don't love the people of Christ, we're giving evidence that we have not ourselves passed out of death and into life. And so in examining ourselves, we should look into the Word of God and see how it describes those who trust in Christ. And then we should look into our own lives and see if that description in the Word matches us. 
at least to some degree. Are we bearing ungodly fruit or are we bearing godly fruit? It's in this way that godly fruit or good works serve to strengthen our assurance that indeed we have saving faith. Now, good fruit shouldn't be the only source of a Christian's assurance. Other sources of assurance are our faith in the promises of God revealed in his word, the witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts testifying that we are children of God, and then our desire to do and actually the doing of good works, the bearing of godly fruits, then is another source of assurance. So good works shouldn't be our only source of assurance, but they should be a source of assurance. Godly fruit is a sign of spiritual life. And we should be alarmed if there is no fruit. Because if there's no fruit, then we're on dangerous ground and may actually not even be in Christ at all. And this brings us to our second point, which is come to agreement with God. The Lord had indeed roared against Israel and was about to come to them in judgment. Judgment would come on them in a peculiar and particular way because they were the only ones out of all the families of the earth whom the Lord had chosen. They had a special relationship with God and had violated that relationship by their egregious sins. And they would be judged as such. But as of yet, at the time that Amos was speaking these words, that judgment had not yet come. And as we move forward in the book of Amos in coming weeks, we'll see how in the midst of this announcement of judgment, the Lord was still calling them to return. And so the words of Amos 5.14, for instance, stand out like a lighthouse on a rocky coast on a dark and stormy night. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And thus may the Lord Lord God of hosts be with you. Even in the midst of all this announcement of judgment, The call to repent, the call to turn back is still there. Seek good and not evil that you may live. Amos 3 tells the people that the lion was roaring, that the Lord had found his prey, and when the judgment fell, there would be absolute devastation, comparable to a lion devouring a sheep, leaving only a couple of legs and a piece of an ear. That judgment was not there yet. Though they were not walking with the Lord because they had no agreement with him, nevertheless, there was a window of opportunity to come to agreement with the Lord and to begin walking with him. And our situation is much the same. Again, as we saw in verse 7, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. The Lord has announced to Israel here the judgment that was coming on them through Amos, and likewise, God has announced to us the coming judgment of the world through our Lord Jesus Christ and through his apostle John in particular. In Revelation twenty two twelve, John gives us the words of our Lord in which our Lord Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. Christ is coming to judge the world. And when he comes, the dead will be raised, and all of the living, all those who are still left alive, will be brought to stand before him, And Christ will render a true judgment on all men and women. And Jesus himself says in John 5, 28 and 29, An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And so this is where we stand. Judgment has been announced. It's out there in front of us. It's coming. We don't know when it is coming, but we know that it is coming. And what remains for us 
is that we must either be reconciled to God in the meantime or face his judgment. I may borrow the words of the Huguenot preacher Jean Dale. He said, we are somewhat in the condition of princes who cannot descend to a private station. They must either perish or reign. It is the same with us. We must either reign with Jesus or perish forever with the devils, either enjoy the most perfect happiness or suffer the utmost misery. Because being sinners, we can be saved only by Christ, and whom he saves, he renders happy to all eternity. And so let's suppose that you did examine yourself, as we were just considering under the first point. You put yourself to the test. You found yourself wanting. You found perhaps that you were not a Christian at all, or if you were a professing believer, you found that you were in a frightful place because there was very little fruit to show in your life. What do you do then? What then? Well, you must do exactly what we would tell everyone to do. Look to Christ. Turn away from your sins and believe in him. Stop walking in stubbornness and pursuing sin, whatever sin you may be pursuing. Stop, turn around, change your mind. Come to terms with the Lord and begin walking with him. And so let the words of Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 give you both courage to come and comfort in the coming. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And I would say the same thing to any believer though your position differs infinitely from those who are outside of Christ and from those who can find little or no godly fruit in their lives when they look for it even still as believers even as fruitful believers We all stumble in many ways. We all have sins from which we must repent. All of us can stand to walk more closely with the Lord. All of us ought to be confessing our sins to the Lord, seeking His mercy, seeking a closer walk, a closer agreement with the Lord. And so we read in our unison reading from 1 John chapter 1 that if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Christ, there is an abundance of mercy, an abundance of forgiveness, an abundance of grace. It is through him and him alone that sins are forgiven. He alone paid the price for sinners by offering himself up guiltless to the Father on the cross. He alone was qualified to be the propitiation for our sins. A propitiation is a sacrifice that takes away wrath. It's the sacrifice that bears wrath and, and takes it away. And God requires that our sins be paid for, either by us in hell or by a substitute. And only Jesus could be that substitute. He alone is the perfect sacrifice because he's truly God and also a true and sinless man. And he became that sacrifice for us by offering himself up to God the Father on the cross and bearing the Father's wrath against sinners. Sinners like me and sinners like you. And so I call to everyone here this morning, believe on his name. Forsake your wicked ways. Forsake your wicked thoughts. Return to the Lord. Come to terms with him. Come to agreement with the Lord. Turn away from your sins, whatever they may be. They are only sources of shame. Be they sexual sins of the body or of the mind, 
neglecting the love and the worship of God as you ought, sins of failing to love your neighbor as you ought, sins of lying or stealing, hatred, slander, gossip, whatever they may be, turn away from them. If I may borrow the words of John Dale again, how can you be so ill-advised as to prefer such vanities to the Lord Jesus, the King of glory, the life and happiness of mankind? How is it that you do not understand that in losing him you lose everything, but by gaining him you lose nothing? Isn't that wonderful that by gaining Christ we lose nothing that is of value? Sin is a source of shame. It's only an embarrassment to us. It's a cause of judgment that comes upon us. But in Christ we lose nothing that is of value. Rather, it is through Christ that we gain everything that is of value. Forsaking our sins, we are turning away from the things which bring misery and shame in this world and damnation in the world to come. In gaining Christ, we gain the one who came into the world so that people might have abundant life. Came that we might have life and have it to the full, as he says in John 10. We gain the one in whom is found unfathomable riches, as Paul says in Ephesians 3.8. We gain the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, as he says in Colossians 2.3. To be in Christ is to be free from condemnation, free from blame before God. It's to be forgiven of our sins, to be justified, counted righteous before God. And so, friends, this applies to all of us, all of you and to me as well. Let's forsake our wicked ways, our unrighteous thoughts. Let's return to the Lord. Let's come to agreement with Him and walk with Him daily. There'll be no regrets for doing this. And the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God will abundantly pardon. God will have compassion on all who come to Christ in faith. All praise and glory be to this merciful God, who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather calls us to turn from our evil ways, that we may find forgiveness and eternal life in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy and kindness. Lord, we ask that we would take seriously the warnings of the judgment to come, that we would weigh the judgment to come in light of the judgments that you have wrought in times past. And Lord, that in light of that, we would be wise, that we would flee to Christ, that we'd flee from sin, and that we would embrace Christ and gain him and every good thing that is to be found in him. We thank you for blessing us, by sending Christ into the world for us. We thank you for sending us this glorious gospel message. We ask for your grace. We may live according to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.